Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. So let me say unequivocally to every elected official here today that if you're ready to make real progress on the issues that matter most to the, to the people of this state, then my door will always be open. Let me also say just as clearly that chasing conspiracy theories, pushing agendas for special interests, attacking the rights of your fellow Arizonans, or seeking to further undermine our democracy will lead nowhere. We need a return to traditional discipline in our schools. When a student misbehaves and there's no consequence, other students learn they can also misbehave. The future of democracy ran through our state. And as I said, Arizona came through for the country. I will visit the border myself this Sunday in El Paso to assess border enforcement operations, meet with the local officials and community leaders and the folks at the border sending me what they need that they don't have. Wise person once told me, good process, Builds good policy, builds good politics. We got to return to them. It is with that that I place the name of my friend and colleague from Arizona, Annie Biggs, for Speaker of the House. Thank you. And with me to talk about this week's inauguration for top statewide elected officials, the death of a controversial Arizona politician, and more, our former lawmaker David Lujan, now with Children's Action Alliance. Good morning, David. Good morning. And former state school superintendent Jaime Molera of Molera Alvarez. Good morning, Jaime. Good morning, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to both of you as well. So, guys, I want to get your sort of your, your general takes on uh, what we saw yesterday uh, of the top, I think it was the five statewide elected officials uh, who were uh, inaugurated uh, publicly. Publicly, they, of course, uh, took the oath of office and, and started working on Tuesday. Jaime, what did, you, what did you take from what the what the elected officials had to say yesterday? Well, first off, with Governor Hobbs, I think she struck a very good tone. I mean, it was a tone that I think she ran on and trying to be uh, bipartisan. And, and the clip that you just ran talked about – she talked about, you know, bringing people together and doing things that, for the good, but, but also being willing and being that uh, wall against some of the extreme – kinds of things that we know are going to be pushed in, in this particular legislature. So I think um, her message was a, a good one, and I think that's the kind of um, tone that will resonate with a lot of the folks that supported her, of course. Yeah, David, a lot of the the headlines, I guess, from yesterday was that, you know, Hobbs strikes a tone of unity, of bipartisanship, as Jaime just said. Is that what you heard as well? It was. Yeah, I think um, that I think was what was the most encouraging to people who who watched those speeches yesterday is, you know, Governor Hobbs talked about, you know, bridging divides, working together for a common Arizona, common good of Arizona. And I think you saw that from, you know, a lot of the statewide candidates there, not all of them, but most of them up there that were talking about, you know, working together, you know, dividing, you know, bringing parties together. And that's why I think they were up on those stages because I think that's what Arizona voters were looking for this past election is they were tired of all the extreme, you know, election conspiracies and those types of things. And I think that's that's why those the people who are on the stage got elected. Yeah, we even heard from Tom Horn, the once and now again school superintendent who said, you know, look, Katie Hobbs and I are from the different party. We might approach things differently. But at the end of the day, we have the same goals. We want to help make the schools better and, and have the kids learn as much as they can. 
Agreed. But, you know, I, I think the two Republicans are on that stage are also looking at uh, the opportunity of running against her in four years. <laughs> yeah. So I think they're already salivating for that opportunity. How important was it for Katie Hobbs to talk about the, you know, coming together and, you know, working with anybody who will work with her yesterday? I mean, obviously, she will be working with a Republican-led legislature, you know, one vote majorities in each chamber, but still a GOP-controlled legislature. Well, but but again, I think if she sends a message that she's willing to work on issues that a lot of the what I would call more centrist organizations, a lot of the business or groups in Arizona, uh, Greater Phoenix Leadership, Greater Phoenix Chamber, those types of groups that she's willing to work with them and make sure that she's going to have an agenda that is still you know, a strong economic development for Arizona but not be part of that extreme I, it, on both sides. I, I think she has to worry a little bit about not just the Republican legislature, but her left flank that are going to expect her and, and think that, look, we've been out of uh, power now for over a decade. So we anticipate that you need to come in and you need to be aggressive in all the things that the progressives want to see happen. That's an interesting point, Dave. And you served in the legislature when Governor Napolitano was here the last time a Democrat mm-hmm. was there. Is there sort of a temptation among Democrats to say, look, we've got someone on the ninth floor now, all the stuff we've wanted to do for years but couldn't, let's all do it right now? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be an expectation. But as was when I was in the legislature with Governor Napolitano, we had a Republican majority in the legislature. So you still have that you know, major obstacle in getting your bills up to Governor Hobbs in this case. And so so but I think um, I think there's going to be a, a pragmatism about, you know, what bills can get through. And I think, um, you know, what I saw when I was in the legislature with Governor Napolitano, particularly that first year was record amounts of vetoes. And so um, it's been a while since we've had a Democrat in the governor's office, and I and some of the Republican legislators are not going to be used to that, and so they're going to send up their usual, you know, bills that uh, tax cuts and things that um, are, are contrary to what Governor Hobbs campaigned for, and so I think you're going to see a lot of vetoes until they get used to saying like we got to find compromise, we got to work together. Will that take a full year? Do you think to make that happen? I think, you know, as the session goes on, I think some will and hopefully enough to, to form, you know, majorities to get things through will happen. I think the the biggest obstacle this year is going to be the school spending limit issue. Mm, um, Governor yeah. Hobbs doesn't have to sign that, but she has to bring them together. They got to, you know, two thirds of both chambers are going to have to um, vote to lift the school spending limit by March 1st. And, and she's going to have to use her bully pulpit to try and help to make that happen. And so that's going to be, I think, the big test early on. Jaime, we saw that as a really big issue last year. And a lot of schools were pretty unhappy with how it went down, you know, sort of going right up into the last minute. Is there a way to try to avoid that this year? Well, I I think it would be a huge mistake for the Republicans to play chicken on this issue because all the governor has to do is wait and, and let them you know, if, if they want to create this dumpster fire, like what's going on in the U.S. Congress, it, it just benefits her, just like this situation in Congress is benefiting President Biden. Republicans have to realize that cutting um, through this mechanism, if they don't take action, you're talking about close to $1.5 billion would be cut from Arizona schools at the very end of the year. Right. And schools would have to shut down, or a lot of schools. And so that just doesn't play well with anybody. If, if they thought that the whole 
Red for Ed issue and the marches were big then. Just wait until something like that happens. And so that's why it would behoove them to get this issue done, to get it done quickly, because it really is, if you think about it, a non-issue. They've already appropriated those dollars and it should be uh, spent just like uh, the prior legislature and the prior governor said that they wanted. Just deal with it and take it off the table is what you're saying. That's right. David, I want to ask you about something else Jaime said about how Governor Hobbs has to sort of watch her left flank as well. Is there a concern on the ninth floor maybe that some of the more left-leaning Democrats in the legislature might try to push things that put the governor in a tough spot as well? Um, Yeah, I think that could happen. But again, I think getting those kinds of bills through the legislature – even getting a committee hearing for what some of those bills uh, might be are, is going to be a challenge. It's always been a challenge with with the Republican-led legislature. So, so I, I don't see that you know that's going to be too much of an issue. I think it's going to be you know maybe dealing with criticism from you know groups or or the communities that maybe. You know, if, if she's taking sort of a middle of the road approach and she's not, you know, going too far to the left, they, that might be the criticism. But in terms of, you know, some of that like super progressive legislation, I don't think she's going to have to worry about it getting, you know, having to decide whether to sign it or not because it's never going to probably get to her desk. Got it. I mean, I want to ask you about uh, former state Senate President Russell Pierce. We found out last night he passed away uh, in Mesa. He was a real giant in Arizona politics for a while. He, of course, is probably best known as being the author of SB 1070 and a number of other immigration-related legislation. He also, of course, was the first and I believe only sitting legislator in the state to be recalled from office during his term. When you look at his legacy in state government, what comes to mind? Uh, He was, candidly, he was a divisive figure in Arizona politics. Um, And it really was... The beginning of a, an era where, um, unfortunately, that, that an era that I've been involved in Arizona politics, where the whole issue of immigration was not just about you know border security. It, it, it bordered on the issue of race, which I, I just thought was unfortunate for our state. And that's where um, – that was the problem that arose during a lot of the issues that, that Russell pushed for. You know, I just remember <clears throat> there was an article that was being done on Latino marketing – and the importance of corporations. And and he talked about how that was so bad for the country that uh, we shouldn't be doing that. And and, uh-huh. I, and so I was interviewed for that and I was asked that question. I said, well, would he be saying that in Boston when talking about marketing to Irish Americans or, you know, in New York talking about Italian Americans? But it, because we're in Arizona, we're talking about Latinos. That was the kind of thing where Russell tended to be very divisive. And but he was a very strong leader for that conservative, very hardcore conservative movement. And I think he was the the, the, the first person to really create that structure where the, the power now that is that is being welded by the conservative groups really started in, lot, in large measure with Russell Pierce. Yeah, David, you served with Russell Pierce in the legislature. Do you see a direct line, as Jaime suggested, from what he was doing, what, in the you know, early 2010s and such, up until where the, some of the conservative movement is now? I do. I do. I, I see a lot of that. And, you know, I would say uh, he was a very divisive figure. He, you know, created a lot of fear in the Latino community and his legislation divided families. And so... Um, uh, but, you know, I would say also one part of his legacy is um, some of those advocacy groups that were created as a result of uh, his recall and the opposition to Senate Bill 1070, 
that's also part of his legacy and one that maybe he didn't envision. But I'm, I'm thinking of groups like, you know, Lucha and Puente who emerged from that to, that are today very powerful in Arizona and in, in, you know, building up the Latino community. And so that's also part of his legacy. Um, you know, one, one story about Russell Pierce, um, you know, when we were serving together, uh, a group of legislators had to go out of state for a conference. And, um, you know, we disagreed on just about everything. Um, but uh, so during this conference, they had to bus some of the, the conference recipients to one of the venues. And it was about a 30-minute bus ride. And so I get on the bus and the only seat is next to Russell. And so I'm going like, oh, my, what am I going to talk to Russell about for 30 minutes? Um, but, you know, the one thing we had in common was our love of ASU football. <laughs> and so so for 30 minutes, we had a great conversation. And that really like taught me, like, if I could talk to thir Russell Pierce for 30 minutes about something like that, because we absolutely got, disagreed on everything else. But um, but I do think that's his legacy is of, you know, being sort of that divisive figure. But also he helped to organize the Latino community in, in some way where and build the power that some, some of these groups are, are, have today. I mean, it's an interesting point. And, and some of the folks, even folks serving in the legislature now, have talked about how they really got energized and engaged around the time of SB 1070, around the time of employer sanctions, English as the official language, that kind of thing, measures that Russell Pierce really was behind. And at, to David's point, really kind of brought about a new, maybe a new era of engagement in the Latino community. I think that's right. And I, I would add to that, I think also that a lot of Arizona um, leading business organizations uh, also understood that their um, their leadership was required in, in keeping a lot of these things from happening. Because let's face it, when, when Arizona went through these types of bills, 1070 being the, the poster child of, of those kinds of uh, extreme bills, then it made Arizona look bad. It hurt our tourism industry. It hurt, you know, just Arizona economic development right. in general. So business groups have been very, very um, much on guard to keep that from happening again. So I would agree that you had a lot of Latino groups rise from that. But I think you saw Arizona's business community say, you know what, we need to be much more engaged to keep those kinds of things from occurring. And the business community was was criticized a bit right after SB 1070, right? right. A lot of folks saying, well, where were you? Why right. weren't you talking about this while it was going on? Yeah, and I think um, you know, I think the passage this year of Proposition 308, the the you know tuition equity bill, right. played a lot part of you know, back when Proposition whatever it was in 2006 that that originally put that in the Constitution. The business community was kind of silent back there, and 70 percent of Arizona voters voted for restricting tuition to to non to immigrant students. Now you look 20, 20 years later, the business community really got involved and said, no, we need, you know, these workers in our workforce. And that really helped to flip and was reason why, you know, we have a different result today. My guests this week are Jaime Molera of Molera Alvarez and David Lujan of Children's Action Alliance. Guys, more drama in the U.S. House. Um, the state legislature will be sworn in on Monday. Members of Congress still not sworn in because they haven't yet picked a speaker. And uh, a trio of Arizona's congressional delegation, Jaime, are at the center of this. Andy Biggs, Paul Gosar, and newly elected Eli Crane. I know that you've been glued to C-SPAN watching every last moment <laughs> all of 11 all of this, votes. all 11 votes with your little tally sheet there. What do you make of, you know, I mean, Andy Biggs is clearly one of the never Kevin McCarthy people. Right. Um, how do you see this ending? 
Well, it, at a time when the Republicans should be basking in getting power back, right? Even though it was muted, they, they wanted a much bigger uh, win, but you know, winning the Senate and they barely won the House. But still, it was a win. And, and being able to move forward and to start to define themselves against uh, President Biden, especially these next two years that are critical so that Republicans can start to lay the foundation for a good uh, 2024 run mm-hmm. to defeat the, the sitting president. They're doing everything in their power to make Biden look good <laughs> because right now the entire focus for the last two months has been on the speaker's race. And you have two, over 200 Republicans saying, yes, Kevin McCarthy should be our speaker. You have 20 or less, 15 to 20 Republicans that are saying, uh, you know, they're holding out. And every time it seems like McCarthy moves to their direction, they move the finish line a little bit further away. So there, it, it's it's disconcerting. Uh, I think the Republicans are just hurting themselves. It, it, they face um, the possibility, I think, of a backlash in that at some point you might have some Republicans say, well, why do we want to concede to these 15 folks? Let's make a deal with the, maybe the Democrats and like-minded. So that's the fear that they could lose a lot more than what these Republicans are trying to get. At the end of the day, as you say, the vast majority, I think it's 90 percent of the Republican conference in the House backs Kevin McCarthy. Is there a sense of what Andy Biggs and Paul Gosar and Eli Crane and the other holdouts, what they actually want? Well, I remember, and this is going back a little bit, but when Andy Biggs became president of the Arizona State Senate, Mm -hmm. he he won on a razor thin uh, vote. It was a big controversy between him and then sitting president Steve Pierce. But the caucus came together and said, look, that's the majority. We have to respect each other as a caucus and we need to move forward. And so and that's what he asked his caucus to do. I was talking to some of the uh, older members and they remembered that speech that he gave. So now it's interesting. <laughs> he's forgot about that <laughs> and saying, I don't care what happens. You're going to listen to me and I'm going to force my views down your throats. And it doesn't matter that there's over 90 percent of my colleagues that feel that way. So that's that's why I think we're getting this chaos right now. David, do you agree with Jaime that Republicans are essentially drawing, you know, snatching a defeat from the jaws of victory here? I do. I think they're showing over and over and over again that they they're not ready to govern. I mean, if you can't do the simplest thing of electing a leader from your own caucus and they've they've failed now for three days in a row, 11 votes. You know, I think that's in the whole country is watching. So I think it's it's showing that they are not going to be able to govern. And whenever they are eventually able to elect a speaker, I mean, I think the message is, is this is the kind of thing that's going to continue. I mean, you, you know, if whoever gets elected as speaker, they're obviously going to seems like have to deal with this group of 20 and, and what kind of concessions they're going to give them. And so how is that going to work when you're trying to deal with, you know, raising the debt ceiling and big issues? I think it's it's going to be hard. And I, I thought it was interesting, the contrast yesterday with President Biden in Kentucky, and he was there with Mitch McConnell and Republican governors and talking about the passage of his infrastructure bill and this bridge and, and you know, showing how, you know, that's working and they're getting things done. And yet then you, you know, split screen Congress over and over again, failing to even you know, get started. And so I think I think it's it's showing that um, it's not good for the House Republicans. And I think it's the whole country is watching. Would <clears throat> excuse me, would either of you worry that that kind of I don't know if, if chaos or dysfunction are fair words to use, but that kind of activity would trickle down to the Arizona legislature this year? 
Well, I don't know if it's trickling down. It might be trickling up. We, we had a, just our last conversation about Russell Pierce, and remember one of the, his lieutenants was Andy Biggs. Right. And Andy Biggs was a part of the, the chaos that ensued when we were trying to get uh, – Governor Brewer was trying to pass a temporary sales tax when we were going through the Great Recession, and that was chaos. Right. That absolutely was chaos. <laughs> and so now you have that person that was part of the leadership now becomes a U.S. congressman that's leading this. So I, I think that there's some roots to what's happening in Washington, D.C. with some of the past that we went through in Arizona. David, you're nodding as well. Yeah, well, having served with Biggs as well during the legislative years, I mean, I think the the example that Jaime brought up with uh, Governor Brewer's sales tax, but I can remember many occasions where you know there was holdouts of Republicans and eventually the majority of Republicans went along with whatever was being decided, but there's many op- occasions where Biggs held out and, and was the n- one, one of few no votes of Republicans. So that's kind of his thing is like he he does not give in. He doesn't find that compromise as, as much as other Republicans would. And I think I think that's kind of reflective of this whole group of 20 that we're seeing now. So, David, you mentioned President Biden. Uh, he announced this week that he'll be down at the border in El Paso this weekend. He has been taking a lot of criticism from Republicans and some Democrats as well about not visiting the border, not doing enough to stem the tide of, of migration coming through. What do you think? What do you think about his going to El Paso and some of the measures that he announced uh, earlier this week? I think it's good. I think um, you know. I think one, he does need to go to the border, and so now he can say he's been there. He's you know, he's talked to people on the border, and I really liked his message yesterday in saying, you know, he's willing to work with anyone to come up with solutions to you know the crisis on our border, and it's 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 you know a, a very complex, complicated thing, and and so. Um, you know, I I tend to wonder sometimes where some of the Republicans don't really have an interest in solving the immigration issue. They just want to use it as a political tool um, because you know, one, it's you know getting you know being, making sure we're addressing the security of the border, but also there's things like our Latin American policy and there's you know uh, you know Dreamers and all of those things and you know, are Republicans really interested in working together? And so President Biden yesterday was saying, I'm willing to work with anyone. And so we'll see how much interest there really is to do that. I mean, what do you think? The president has been taking a lot of criticism for not going there. Now he's going there. Is it enough? Well, it's interesting how the president had an opportunity for the last two years because they controlled the Congress to actually do something, the things that David was talking about. Nothing happened. So this has been uh, an unmitigated disaster where even Democrat mayors that are feeling the pressure of a lot of immigrants in their cities, they're saying, Mr. President, you got to do something about this. And I also find it from a political standpoint interesting because remember early on in the administration, Vice President Harris was going to be that leader and she was right. going to drive and she was going to create those solutions. Well, again, nothing happened. So I think now from a political standpoint, because it has not gone well for the administration in dealing with immigration – that they've had to reverse themselves in a lot of ways. Now they're going to using uh, the uh, Title 42, the pre-COVID era or the COVID era restrictions that you know allowed Trump to send people back, and they're going to be u- utilizing that same tactic. Wow. So I just think that right now, from a political standpoint, the administration really had to do something because that was the one big fissure that would continue to uh, open up. If they didn't do anything about it, that really could hurt them in the next uh, – in 2024. Hmm. David, go ahead. Well, I was just say, well, keep in mind in the U.S. Senate, you basically need 60 votes to do anything. And so that's always going to require both Democrats and Republicans to work together. So, yes, the Democrats were in the majority of the last two years with you know, President Biden. But, you know, there's 
to get things through the U.S. Senate, you really got to have, you know, that coalition working together. Is it possible to do some kind of immigration? I mean, we for years we've talked about comprehensive immigration reform, right? I mean, back even when Russell Pierce was in the legislature mm-hmm. and in Congress, they talked about immigration reform. Is it possible to get something through Congress that will actually make a difference? Well, some of the things that are just – they're not sexy that a lot of folks – for instance, like work visas. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a delegation, uh, business delegation uh, last November go down to Mexico and that was one of the big issues we talked about with Mexican officials is that the ability to have that relationship where we can expand our workforce but at the same time it helps both countries out. And so you want to have that as uh, former U.S. Senator John Kyle talked about circularity. Where if you have that process where folks can work here, we can take care of our economic needs and our workforce needs, which are growing uh, in this country. Um, But folks then can go back and and benefit their home countries because they bring those resources. They bring that expertise. That's that kind of circularity that John Kyle talked about. But that seems to be kind of the rational way of dealing with this. But now (laughs) immigration, unfortunately, it gets down to the – the, the basic terms of walls and uh, bumper know, sticker type, bumper stuff. Sticker mm-hmm. type yeah. stuff. And it's unfortunate. But those are the kinds of things, if we really want to deal with this, um, we're going to have to look at it from, from how it benefits from an economic perspective. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Jaime Molera of Molera Alvarez, David Lujan of Children's Action Alliance. Guys, thanks to you both. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank Happy you. Happy New Year. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.